0: Hi everybody, and this is the 3 p.m. webinar uh, for today. Uh, My guest, as it's my show, right? It's not really my show. Uh, (laughs) This is Christopher Major, my name is Christian Cisan, and now you can see our faces. Hopefully, uh, the title screen was there for, uh, you know, your background reimbursement and subrogation is our topic this month Uh, if you do see these webinars uh, on a monthly basis you're very familiar with this slide because you can enter in questions as we go along we're going to give you the information uh, as we go through the slides in a fairly concise manner but if you have a question please submit it even if we don't get to it today because we can uh, respond to you via email or phone after the break okay so what we want to do is talk about where we can provide value to our clients uh, from a reimbursement or a subrogation perspective and the idea is that uh, we are very comfortable right with our clients understanding of how we defend a workers compensation claim but the idea that there could be something more to do right that could provide greater value in the end and really looking at it at a claim as a bottom line uh, you know PL statement right? what can we do or what do we tell clients we do to get there
1: so we're referring to uh the concept of risk transfer which um there was a podcast on that i believe last month the third fridays um but uh what we're looking for at the outside of the workers comp claim is if there's a third party that could be responsible and that's what we mean by tortfeasor someone else that may have caused caused the uh claimants work injuries and this could be a you know, slip and fall a motor vehicle accident whatever the case may be, somebody else that's responsible other than the claimant like lifting a box and straining his back. Um, so we would look to see first if the claimant filed a lawsuit against someone. This would be in one of the civil courts in New York, typically Supreme Court in one of the counties. Uh, and what we would be assessing is whether the injuries are the result of somebody else's negligence.
0: Right, and the idea <clears throat> that that provides uh, value to clients is really measured in different ways, right? So. Uh, Well, let's talk about reimbursement and differentiate from subrogation here. What would you say is your typical reimbursement uh, issue involving a civil claim from a third-party perspective versus workers' compensation?
1: So reimbursement is by and large the one that everyone's the most familiar with, right? It's the we pay indemnity and medical and the workers' compensation claim. The claimant has a third-party action. They go to settle it. We get back approximately two-thirds of what we've paid in indemnity and medical. Pretty straightforward. Claimant gets a settlement. We have a lien. We get reimbursed. Subrogation is the right to actually prosecute the claim as the worker's compensation carrier as subrogee of the claimant. So we step into the claimant's shoes and we file the complaint as the worker's comp carrier in civil court. Uh, Now, section 29, as uh, some of you may be familiar, Uh, Not every worker's comp subrogation statute is self-executing. So fortunately, Section 29 is. Uh, There's really no need to perfect your rights like there would be in Section 40 or uh, even with Connecticut's subrogation statute. Um, So that's a fortunate aspect, but I would caution against getting too passive with just assuming that Section 29's self-executing nature is going to cover your interests. So when you say getting too passive,
0: right, What is what, what, what are some examples of things that we can do to avoid that
1: uh, you
0: know, in using uh, a civil team here at Lois?
1: So there's more to uh, pursuing reimbursement than just sitting back and monitoring. Uh, I think the trap that a lot of people fall into is there's a third party case going on and it's its own animal and the snowball's rolling downhill and when the snowball hits the bottom of the hill, where, wherever the dust settles, that's what we're dealing with. And our position here is that's not the case at all. There's actions and measures that can be taken such as continually apprising all parties of our lien, taking an active role in settlement negotiations, appearing at conferences, mediations, arbitrations, uh, monitoring the third party discovery so we can get a meaningful forecast of when this case is reaching settlement, evaluating liability. Maybe there's a motion to dismiss pending. Maybe that affects our right to reimbursement. Uh, this is. There are ways of keeping tabs on the third-party civil action and participating in, not necessarily the prosecution, but the litigation, uh, such that you're doing more than sitting back and waiting for the money to roll in. It's a great winter metaphor, right?
0: <laughs> waiting for the snow, snowball to roll
1: in. I think that's a great
0: thing to remember. Uh, <clears throat> we talk about how we put parties on notice when we're involved, but we also have an opportunity to monitor the civil claim if we have subrogation or reimbursement reimbursement opportunities before the snowball hits the bottom of the hill, right? So what kind of issues do we see when we get to monitor civil claim uh, through the use of public databases?
1: So one of the most common requests that um, an adjuster will have is, has a complaint been filed? If so, where? And are you able to get a copy of it? And the answer to that question, uh, now that New York has moved by and large to e-filing for commercial claims, is almost always yes. Uh, There's the New York State Courts electronic filing system uh, and then there's uh, my personal favorite for a quick and easy search, uh, eCourts. So this is their web civil supreme system. Um, It's pretty user friendly. You don't need to be an attorney to access it and it's a pretty uh, intuitive search. You know, last name, first name, uh, you can sort it by date, you can sort it by jurisdiction, you can narrow down your search to find the action and then nowadays, uh, like say there's a motion to dismiss like I referenced earlier, usually discovery will be attached as exhibits to those motions and that's your chance to almost synthesize it with your workers' compensation claim and see, did the depth transcripts line up? Is the claim of telling one thing to us in the workers' comp claim saying something else to the GL defense attorney in the, on the civil side? So it goes beyond just monitoring where the claim's at. Right. I think that's a very important point. Right. Uh, Usually we think of them as so
0: separate until a certain actionable point. But having right having one party help you on both sides actually creates the idea that you can use what is going on in third party claim to really downgrade or really decrease the exposure on the workers comp side. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, and I think we even had a case very recently where there was no uh, elbow fracture reported to our IME, but sure enough, it showed up in the claimant's civil deposition. So this is something to keep an eye out for, and and while you're pursuing reimbursement, uh, there's also a chance to possibly minimize your exposure or maybe even raise fraud on the workers' compensation end.
0: Okay, so that's a little bit of background uh, on reimbursement. But we all know that you want to know how much you're going to get back. And that's really going to be an answer tailored to a specific case uh, that's usually before you. And a lot of what we depend on is the amount of the third-party award in relation to the amount of monies we paid on the workers' comp claim. So let's imagine a scenario where the award is greater than the lien or the, the amounts paid on the workers' compensation claim. How much are we typically going to get back?
1: So to the extent that this calculus can be ever easy, uh, this is the easier version of it. Uh, If there's more in the third-party settlement than there is in our comp exposure, it's going to be the cost of litigation reduction per Kelly versus State Insurance Fund, uh, which is attorney's fees, costs and disbursements expressed as a percentage of the total third-party recovery uh, and then that percentage is what comes off of our Section 29 reimbursement. So, say, attorney's fees and costs plus disbursements equals 35% of the total third-party civil settlement. We have a 65% reimbursement on what we've paid an indemnity in indemnity and medical. And, of
0: course, if there's an outlay of net monies received by the claimant, how does that affect uh, the comp carrier going
1: forward? Section 29 applies both retroactively and in the future, so we have uh, we have our reimbursement, which you know comes from the calculation we just described, and then there's the net amount that the claimant receives from the third party settlement. So this is after the attorney's fees and costs and disbursements come out, after our reimbursement, after any other liens, Medicaid, whatever the case may be. There's a bottom line dollar figure, and this is why we always, 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 in a third party settlement, get a certified closing statement from the attorney. Uh, there's a bottom-line statement of what the claimant got from the third-party settlement. That is the extent of our future credit, which uh, per the case Burns and per Bissell, uh, we can apply that as a credit going forward.
0: Now, the difference is obvious when the third-party award or the third-party settlement offer is less than what is paid in the comp claim. So how does that affect the amount recovered by
1: the workers' comp adjuster in their claim? So this is where you start to get into the weeds a little bit. Um, There's a whole uh, different calculus and formula under Section 29 for computing what's called deficiency compensation. But the bottom line version of it is uh, if there is a greater exposure on the workers' comp side than there is a civil recovery, the statute provides that we're liable for the difference. In other words, we keep paying comp in the form of deficiency compensation. Uh, The way it works practically, however, is we would have a lien on the entirety of the third-party settlement, less the attorney's fees and costs and disbursements. And so if the claimant is uh, asking for the third or third or third split, well, I mean, we're not obligated to do anything like that. Um, The future credit, that's, again, if the claimant walks away with anything from the third-party settlement, and that's gonna be paid at the cost of litigation rate we discussed earlier, attorney's fees, costs, and disbursements over total third-party settlements.
0: Right. <clears throat> so we did talk about the one-third, 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 and I, I'm sure that everyone that is handling a comp claim today uh, has their particular uh, story about conversations with plaintiff's third-party attorneys that really make this seem like it's a real thing, right? So. Uh, Explain what that actually means, and if there's any real basis, hint, hint, there is none, but <laughs> explain what it means.
1: Yeah, so it's it, it seems like it's, it's only fair, right? I mean, the attorney gets his one-third fee, the claimant gets one-third of the settlement, the carrier gets one-third of the settlement. Everybody gets the same amount, everyone walks away happy. Uh, there's nothing in the statute that requires that. There's the cost of litigation reduction per Kelly, which we discussed earlier, but there's nothing that says you have to take a third, a third, a third. And to the extent that you waive any portion of your lien reimbursement so that the claimant walks away with money when you would otherwise have a lien on the entirety of the third-party settlement, that's essentially just a gift um, is the way to look at it. And these belligerent third-party attorneys, which any you know any adjuster, if they've picked up this phone and spoken with them, they can get a little, uh, little overbearing, to put it nicely. Um, sometimes they'll make... Uh, you know, outrageous threats like we're going to just drop the claim. We're going to abandon the claim because you guys are being greedy. Well, okay, have fun. Drop the claim. Section 29 allows us to pick up the ball and carry it across the one yard line. Uh, We can then subrogate, as we discussed earlier. So, I mean, all of these threats, they carry very little weight. Sometimes you'll even hear, oh, our case, uh, we have really bad liability. We're not going to win in trial. You should settle or else the money's going to disappear. Uh, Okay, well, if that's the case, you wouldn't be pushing for as much of a settlement as you're pushing for. You know, it's you got to sort out what is actually real.
0: Imagine, too, right? uh, You know, the third party plaintiff attorney has a job to actually secure some money for the plaintiff or the claimant. So to abandon that ship based on the idea that we are withholding a third of our rightful reimbursement number doesn't actually make sense. The idea that the, the claimant gets a third of that doesn't take into account the fact that they have a net money recovery as part of the judgment itself or the settlement
1: itself. Right, and uh, let's let's just be clear. Section 29 money is not a lien until there's an actual settlement. It's a reimbursement right. It's our money on that, right. th- on that third party case until such time as it settles. And uh, I have a very hard time believing, as I'm sure many people would, that a third party attorney could prosecute a case for two years, incur costs and disbursements out the wazoo, and then walk away from a $100,000 settlement because the carrier's not willing to waive a portion of their lien. It's just not gonna happen.
0: Right. <clears throat> okay, so when we talk about maximizing reimbursement, we are trying to tell our clients that there is an opportunity, not just when the snowball rolls down the hill and comes to the bottom, but that the opportunities exist to be aware of these issues prior to that date, right? And we always like to say that, you know, a trial attorney's uh, best skill is preparation, right? It limits the surprises that are involved in a a case and having this intra Uh, team aspect between civil and workers compensation actually gives clients greater value in the end. So what are some examples that uh, we can, what are examples of of things we can do to really help achieve that objective?
1: So you're always going to get two different sides of the story, right? You're going to get the plaintiff's attorney who may be saying that their liability is, is, you know, non-existent, the defendant's liability that is, and that their case is going to get dismissed. And then you may have the defense attorney saying, I really don't want this to go to jury trial because the the verdicts in this jurisdiction are outrageous. Which, by the way, jury settlements and and verdicts, uh, that's something that we can absolutely monitor as attorneys. uh, And we can sort of forecast where the case is going to end up depending on the jurisdiction. Um, But we may have access to more information than what may even be available to the parties at the time of litigation of third party settlement. Um, example would be a construction accident case, right? There's a workers' compensation claim. There's more than likely OSHA reports, uh, investigative reports, first reports of injury from our client. We may have privy to, we may be privy to more facts and circumstances than even the third-party attorneys know, because they still have yet to go through discovery, um, and we along that same line, you know, a lot of these third-party attorneys would specialize in specific areas of practice. Slip and fall, trip and fall, motor vehicle accident, no fault, etc. cetera. Uh, comp, to a certain extent, overlaps with all of those. Right. So it's, it's a familiarity with the facts of every different type of tort, really, and how you can pursue that in civil court. And on, in some cases, uh, the comp carrier may end up being the voice of reason. You know, you have two sides that are unwilling to come to an agreement, and we can sort of step in, participate in mediation, maybe make some recommendations, maybe massage it a little bit, and uh, push it toward a resolution. And this is what we were talking about with less being passive, more participation, more control on the outcome. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good point, because the idea is that all the work that we
0: create with a workers' compensation adjuster on one file is now going to be pushed to Uh, either subrogation council, a subrogation department, or different third-party civil defense, right, that would then have to start from the beginning, right? Uh, Keeping it internally actually saves in the long run, right? Like, it's the idea that there's no added or extraneous review.
1: Right, And, and I think the best way to summarize that is three simple words, do discovery once. If we're doing all of this investigation from the outset of the claim, and we know the medicals, we know the file, this is our way to leverage it in possibly defending against civil exposure should that arise. And along that same line, we may have better relationships with third-party defense attorneys to the extent that there's an in-the-trenches sort of relationship. They're representing automobile PIP carriers. We're representing workers' compensation carriers. Everyone knows how the game works. Uh, And it may be uh, a quite a bit easier talking to us as an intermediary than it would be talking to the aforementioned belligerent third-party plaintiff attorneys.
0: (laughs) Okay, so we talked about reimbursement. Now let's define subrogation uh, for our viewers today. How is that different from what we had just talked about?
1: So we'll give the uh, brief definition of it. Uh, To put into the place of another, substitute for another. This is the stepping into the shoes of the claimant that we touched on briefly earlier. This is where we inherit their cause of action so to speak the actual term under section 29 is an assignment of the cause of action but basically if they have a claim for uh, motor vehicle negligence because somebody you know t-boned their car uh, we have a claim for motor vehicle negligence if they fail to prosecute their own claim and that's how we can pursue a recovery outside of just passive lean monitoring
0: and what's the statute of limitations on that Kind of action
1: so the statute of limitations for most personal injury suits in new york unless you're dealing with governmental entities is three years uh, so it's you fall into this trap so to speak of sitting around and waiting for the claimant to take action on their third party claim when we have a right of action under section
0: 29. <clears throat> so there are cl- certain types of claims that we often subrogate, right, Mm -hmm. that are very commonplace. Uh, But there are some claims that maybe we don't think of having an option, right? So what are some types of claims that are typically ones that we see versus some that are kind of rare?
1: So we always have uh, the personal injury ones that we've been talking about. Your slip and falls, your trip and falls, your construction accidents, New York has the relatively unique nowadays, scaffold laws, which in some cases could give strict liability for construction accidents. Um, motor vehicle cases, all of that is pretty standard. Uh, but Section 29 also will give us a right of recovery in a medical malpractice case. And uh, you know the doctor, even in a civil claim, is not gonna be on the hook for the initial accident. They're on the hook to the extent that their malpractice exacerbated the claimant's damages, but if that happened and we were obligated to pay more medical as a result, we would have a right of subrogation under a med claim against that doctor. Say they botched a surgery and there's a need for another one. Legal malpractice. Say the third-party attorney uh, misses the aforementioned statute of limitations. Uh, the claimant would have a third-party cause of action against that attorney. They may not want to do it. Maybe it's a f- friend of the family. Who knows? That's something we can prosecute and we can put a lien on. Uh, there are situations where um, some of the third party defendants will seek contribution from uh, the employer or the carrier. In other words, they're saying you're obligated to reimburse me a certain amount. Uh, but the good news is that's only in the case of a grave injury under the workers' comp law. Otherwise, we're protected under uh, workers' comp exclusivity.
0: So let's say we do the subrogation action on behalf of uh, the claimant, right? We're stepping into their shoes. Uh, what is the process in which we would actually go about doing it?
1: So we need 30 days notice, uh, and we're going to send that via a form of registered mail. Think certified mail return receipt requested, right? Uh, And we have two different uh, timelines running, so to speak. One is the awarding of compensation at six months from that date or a year from the date of loss. Um, Now, the six months from the awarding of compensation is pretty interesting in light of the Uh, in light of the three-year statute of limitations that we talked about earlier, because you could run into this trap of, you know, the claimant doesn't file a suit for two and a half years. We could do the greatest job. We could push quick resolution like we try to do here. Uh, We could negotiate a full and final section 32 settlement uh, within six months and then sit around waiting two and a half years for the claimant to do something to get our reimbursement back. Well, six months after the warning of compensation, we can serve that Section 29 notice and subrogate, or if a year has gone by since the date of loss, we can do that. Now, there, we just have to be careful with the language. The Section 29 notice, you do have to advise the claimant that a failure to file their own action will operate as an assignment of that cause of action to the carrier. And of
0: course, there are actions that we can't pursue, right? Uh, so although we do want to pursue it wherever possible, what are some actions that are just not uh, available to us?
1: So we have uh, no recovery against first-party benefits. This comes from New York's no-fault law. Essentially, if there were no workers' comp carrier involved, Uh, you can't, the claimant would be unable, or the plaintiff, I guess, if there's no comp carry involved, would be unable to sue for the first 50K in basic economic loss, medical treatment, loss of earnings. So the Section 291A uh, operates with the New York no-fault law to say, we don't have a right to prosecute the 50K uh, reimbursement, nor do we have a lien on it. And that only makes sense, if we're subrogated to the same rights as the claimant, we wouldn't be able to sue for that in court either. So right. it's more of a
0: procedural decision because we're going to initiate loss transfer for those monies, right?
1: If in situations where loss transfer applies, absolutely. And um, you know, it's uh, there are ways around this as there are with uh, everything. You know, the carve out is not uh, a blanket application. There are exceptions, there are intricacies to it. And that's something that you would definitely want your attorneys to be familiar with before conceding, we're losing out on 50K of our reimbursement. Right. Um, so what's, what, what's an example of, uh, I guess, uh, an underinsured
0: or un- uninsured motorist plan that would typically allow for subrogation or third-party reimbursement, uh, but in some cases we would not actually be able to recover at all?
1: In some instances, the uh, third-party defendant uh, will not have coverage or will have inadequate coverage to cover the claimant plaintiff's damages. And this is where it gets a little interesting because New Jersey does let you, under Section 40, assert a lien on underinsured motorists and uninsured motorist benefits. New York does not, and that comes from Section 29 saying, it's rights of action against such other uh, and recovering from your own automobile insurance policy, which is the party that's going to pay the UM or UIM benefits, that's considered a first party benefit in New York. So there's no lien against that. Now, subrogation
0: seems like it's all well and good, and it is. It truly is because it creates the opportunity. But there are problems that we, you should be aware of if you decide to subrogate, right? And what are they?
1: One of the things you're going to struggle with is if you have a claimant that didn't want to file their own suit, you're going to have a hard time getting that claimant to participate in you prosecuting a suit in their name. And believe it or not, it does happen. Um, but a lot of times the third-party uh, defense carrier or their attorneys will want to depose the claimant. We have to produce them. I mean, we're, we're, we're subrogated to their causes of action, and they have a right to cross-examine the party bringing the claims against them. So, I mean, that can, if a claimant refuses to participate in a deposition, that could be a basis for a motion to dismiss our subrogated claim. Um, New York, uh, with the claims against the municipal uh, entity with the 58 hearings. We got to produce them. Um, so it's even more difficult when you have an unrepresented claimant who lacks the sophistication or the wherewithal to recognize what exactly is going on here and sort out what they need to do and what they really don't need to do. So uh, it can be difficult to get their cooperation.
0: Right, but I think in all, all in all, right, that it's it's more of a matter of pushing them to make a decision. Right, because it's still a successful subrogation action if it moves the claimant to file on his on his or her own,
1: right? And this is why we we push monitoring the moment that Section 292 notice becomes ripe, because if nothing else, even if the claimant prosecutes it on their own, at least we lit a fire. You know, we're not sitting around waiting for the three-year statute to go by before something happens. Uh, we're either pushing them to take action, or we're taking the action ourselves. Okay, well, that does it for our substantive portion of the show today. Uh,
0: We can still take questions uh, and we do have a couple that we're going to get to. Uh, So as we do that, uh, just give us a second. Larry asks, if the claimant's attorney is slow to send the closing statement or just won't, do we have any recourse? What do you think is our first action, Chris, if a third party plaintiff attorney does not wanna provide a closing statement that would delineate the costs of litigation and the attorney fee to our attention.
1: So ideally uh, this is not something you're getting after all is said and done. This is something you're getting before you grant your consent because you want to grant your consent with all the facts on the table. They need our formal written consent in order to enter into this settlement or else the claimant waives the right to future benefits. So if they don't want to tell us what their costs and disbursements are and they don't want to tell us what their client's getting then we don't have to consent, and they can go ahead and file the non-protunk motion in court and seek to compel the settlement, but we'll oppose it. And chances are we're gonna win because we have a right to know that information. If you've already um, run into the problem of having consented to the settlement, and you're just sort of waiting for the closing statement as a matter of course, and you're just not getting it, you could consider filing a motion in civil court to enforce the settlement agreement. You know, in a good, in a well-crafted consent letter, I know, we always contain a statement saying you know upon completion of this action you will provide a certified copy of the closing statement to our attention that's an enforceable writing under new york civil practice law and rules for which we can file a motion Uh, to enforce the settlement agreement. So if we wanted to go that route, it's a little nuclear, but it's definitely something we could do. Well, think about it the other way too, right?
0: Uh, If we are not allowed to receive the closing statement, then it actually incentivizes third party plaintiff's attorneys to beef up the cost of litigation if we don't have a recourse to actually verifying that. So you have to be able to verify that those costs actually make sense and allow for a maximum recovery that you would already be entitled to, right? Allowing the plaintiff's attorney to decrease that number without any kind of verification is not something you would wanna do. Uh, Kim asks, New York claims adjusters can refer the file to your practice to file the third party recovery on any complicated or involved third party claim, correct? Adjusters don't have to, to monitor these claims alone where the claimant attorney has done his due diligence to file, particularly where there is a lot at stake, correct? Yes. Obviously, uh, there is going to be certain complicated claims where the third-party filings are going to be rapid and just against each other. You might have different defendants uh, that come in with their own filings. You can refer that matter to us to do the the aggressive monitoring that we do. I think one of the great things that uh, that practice has resulted in is getting compensation and third-party in a mode where you can expect a settlement to come sooner rather than later and giving yourself that opportunity starts getting you in that uh, mode to prepare
1: and in case there's um another aspect of this question that um i'm not sure if if this is what was being asked but um, if you're asking if we would be willing to handle that kind of thing uh even if we didn't have the workers compensation claim absolutely that's what we have a dedicated civil team here to do And that's what we were talking about earlier, having meaningful participation in the settlement and pushing this to some kind of resolution. That's a great point, right? There's going to be
0: some issues where uh, the defense of the workers' compensation claim is either inactive or it's handled and you don't actually need representation on the compensation file. Our civil team is dedicated for that specific purpose as well to allow for the facilitation of either a global settlement or consent to reimbursement. So if anybody has any future questions, you can email Christopher Major or myself. My name is Christian Season. We're reminding you to defend from day one and to seek your own truth.